1: Hello and welcome to Scran, the podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and on this episode I take a tour of the Glenmorangie Distillery in Tain, including a sneak peek at their newly opened Lighthouse Distillery, where Dr Bill Lumsden, their head of distilling and whisky creation, will work on new releases for the company. I'm here at Glenmorangie House to talk to Dr Bill Lumsden about his career so far, what jam got him into whisky, his creations, the new Lighthouse distillery and what the future holds. Hi, Dr. Phil, how are you?
2: Hello there, yes, I'm very good, thank you. Nice to see you.
1: Yeah, you too. So, just going to dive straight in and ask you, is this your
2: dream job? I think the job I do now absolutely is my dream job for a whole number of reasons. Not least that Glenmorangie, 10-year-old, was the first single malt I ever tasted when I was a much younger man now. So, the fact that I'm responsible for it now is good. Yeah, it's pretty cool.
1: That kind of answers my next question, which was, what was the first jam that got you into whiskey? Was it Glenmorangie? It,
2: it, it was Glenmorangie, 10 year old as it was at the time. And, you know, I knew I'd tried other types. I tried some blended scotch and other spirits, but that first magical taste of single malt opened up a whole new world for me. And it pretty much determined that that's where my career path was going to be. So two years later, after that, I joined the scotch whiskey industry.
1: Nice. But you're a chemist too, is that right?
2: Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm a biochemist. So I was doing my PhD at Heriot-Watt University at the time and I was studying fermentation science. So obviously, obviously there was a natural fit in there with my career.
1: Glenmorangie 10 was the first whisky that got you kind of into it, but was what was your first kind of whisky memory? Was that it or was there something younger? Uh,
2: my first whisky memory was my mum my and dad, all, all my extended family enjoyed whisky. And you know, my dad, he liked Chivas Regal and my mum liked Famous Grouse. But you know, back in these days, in the 70s, single malt wasn't quite so popular. But I have one other memory before that, and it was my best friend at school, Ian, and his late father. And again, I'm going back to the 70s, he always had a bottle of Glen Glenmorangie or Highland Park to hand. So he was ahead of his time in terms of enjoying single malt.
1: And so was it kind of in the back of your head that, so blending was the thing, yeah. but it was in the back of your head that it could single malt could become more of a popular thing.
2: And yeah, I, I, and because I was a university student and a bit of a geek in studying things from an early age, I realised the kind of pecking order and the fact that single malt was the ultimate in that category so I always kind of gravitated towards that I know it it was the most expensive and it was a little bit harder to find in these days
1: So just to go back to your day-to-day job it sounds amazing and I think a lot of people would think wow that's something I'd love to do how much of your job is purely scientific?
2: I would say that when I started off in my career I was largely led with my scientific training but what I do now it's probably 75% art and 25% science and I think to be the best type of master distiller you can be you need to have a real feeling for it and it's almost now like I I don't even think about what I'm doing it just comes naturally I just feel it so the science is still there and it helps me understand things but in terms of creating the whiskies it's much more art and craft I would say. Mm.
1: And so it comes from kind of within you then, if it's that kind of...
2: Yeah, and, you know, I, I've tried to train up a number of people working under me and I've always said to them, I, I can teach you lots and lots of science but I I can't teach you that you've either got it or you haven't within you it's the same with having a good nose and palate you can be trained to identify things but if you're not born with a good nose and palate then forget it you can't do it.
1: So to go back to the start this is where you are now and you worked for the company that was that is now Diageo so is that is that how your career started you went to them and then you've come here?
2: The DCL Distillers Company Limited as they were when I joined them are still the biggest company in the industry. So many people in the industry cut their teeth with Diageo and do their training there. So I started off there as a research scientist. I then became a trainee distillery manager and then a distillery manager and worked in malting and grain distilling and all sorts of different things. If you speak to my peer group in the Scotch whisky industry, 50% of us all cut our teeth with, with the DCL.
1: And what was it that made you move over?
2: It was two things. Firstly, that I never forgot that first taste of Glen Morangy, and it was the first single mall I loved that got me into the category. But mainly I felt that by moving to a company like Glen Morangy, a smaller company, I would have more freedom to do some of the experimental things I wanted to do. And that, that's exactly how it turned out.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's still the same now, even though it's owned by quite a big
2: it's actually even more that way now, Rosalind, and since we were bought by LVMH, uh, you know, Mort Hennessy Louis Vuitton, in 2005, they've actually encouraged me and invested in me to do things like the lighthouse. Love. That That would never have happened back in the day.
1: Yeah, so what can you tell us about the lighthouse?
2: The lighthouse was the result of a bit of banter between myself and the former CEO, and I pretended to him that I was bored. And you know, I, I wasn't, of course, but I just wanted to do something different. And the end result of this toing and froing was that he gave me a pot of money to invest and do something different, and I was already Realising that some of the more wacky experiments I wanted to do, I couldn't do them in the main distillery because we didn't have the right type of equipment for that. So that that was the genesis of it, and it led to the creation of what we now call our Lighthouse Experimental Distillery,
1: which is we've we've seen it um, just yesterday. It's a big glass building in the distillery, uh, and it looks it is amazing. So that will be where you're going to be trying out lots of different things. Yeah, that'll
2: allow me to bring to life a whole list of experiments that I've always wanted to do but never had the capability to do. So although I'm based down in the company's head office in Edinburgh, I anticipate spending a lot of time back up here at Glenmorangie.
1: Dr Bill guided us round the Lighthouse Distillery as part of the tour and whilst he was keen to show us his new laboratory of sorts, he was keeping his cards close to his chest and making sure he didn't breach any Scotch Whiskey Association rules.
2: I'm I'm not going to say everything about what we're going to be doing here because some of it's secret and some of it I haven't even dreamt up yet, but it has been designed to give me maximum flexibility Whereas in the main distillery, even when we're processing the chocolate malt for the signet spirit, it's quite tricky to do that with the existing equipment. So in here is the malt intake area, and it's been scaled down for, for kind of obvious reasons. So we'll be able to take in bags of raw material. Uh, again, I'm not going to be too specific about that, but it's not just likely to be malted barley. We've got a hammer mill and things which will allow us to process different bits and pieces. So again, non-malted cereals will be able to be processed here. And that's going to lead to interesting discussions with the Scotch Whiskey Association. After the publication of the article the FT, the SWE contacted me the next day and said, we'd like to have a chat with you, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) I've ignored it so far. They're very particular about what you can and cannot do. I mm-hmm. you know An example of that is you can't produce bourbon in Scotland, it's against the law. You can produce a liquid, which is exactly the same as bourbon, but if you call it bourbon you'll be sued by the American distillers, so it's things like that. They're, they're just making sure that we uh, dot the I's and cross the T's. But you know there are some things I've wanted to do, particularly in terms of using different cereal types. Mm-hmm. Um, which you can do you just have to be careful what you call it so for example if i processed corn here what i would technically be making in in their eyes would be scotch grain whiskey they are quite uh, binding the regulations now of course that doesn't mean that you can't make a product which Defies the reggae, you just wouldn't be able to call it Scotch whiskey. I've already done one or two bits and pieces at Ardbeg in particular, which you know is sailing close to the wind, um, and we'll, we'll see what happens when it reaches maturity. But, you know, we, we, we work closely with the SWA, and they, they are our industry regulated, regulatory body, so you, know, you don't want to get on the wrong side of them.
1: Can you tell us anything, what you're going to do?
2: I can't go into specifics, Rosalind, but you know when you did the tour yesterday, I pointed out the fact that I can process all sorts of different raw materials in there. And in the still house, I am looking forward to trying to create a whole range of different spirit types there. You know, Glenmorangie, the base spirit, is renowned for being very perfumed, very floral, very elegant. But with this plant, I can create a whole range of different things
1: and then sit up in your balcony and enjoy the view.
2: (laughs) Hopefully at the end of a a busy period of work, I'll be able to put my feet out and just look out over the Dornoch Firth. And part of the idea with that is that not only is it a magnificent view, but it will inspire me to think up new ideas and new creations.
1: And is that, so other distilleries have sort of experimental labs and things, is the view and the fact that you could build a building in that space part of the reason that it's so in the public eye?
2: (laughs) you're not hiding it away? We're not hiding it away but it's not going to be on the normal tour route for visitors to the distillery so it still is a little bit of a secret. I've always viewed Glenmorangie distillery and Ardbeg distillery as being my large experimental laboratories but you know I was limited as to what I could do there because we have to produce the standard whiskies, the core range so now I've got an actual real living breathing full scale experimental distillery to try all these things out in
1: Just to sort of go back to your day job as well is there a part of it that might surprise people about your job?
2: What I would say about my job is that this doesn't get a lot of PR and a lot of press coverage but 50% of my efforts go into trying to make sure that the core range especially Glenmorangie original and Ardbeg 10 year old are as good as they possibly can be and they're very very well Known products and they've been around for many years, but you know, as well as the more glamorous side of things, I do in terms of traveling and getting PR coverage and doing things like I'm doing with you today, Rosalind. I put a lot of effort into the core range,
1: which is good because people might think, well, you know, you've got that down to fine arts; so you don't really have to think about it. But that's that's your uh, bread you, and butter. You,
2: you, you can never take your eye off the ball. You know, it's a natural product. Now, there's variations in the harvest, there's variations in the climate, so you've always got to stay on top of that.
1: During our tour of the distillery, we ventured outside to the spring that supplies the water which goes into making Glenmore and Jay. Edward Tom, distillery manager, and Ludo de Croc, director of education and advocacy, told us how this hard water is slightly alkaline, which plays a part in the creation of whisky they also had an unusual request for those on the tour.
3: So this is the actual water that we made the whisky with. It's the same as this one. This is just the overflow. (laughs) Yeah, it's not. You're not drinking (laughs) pond water. (laughs) this, This is just straight. As it comes out of the ground, this is the, the freshest water you'll ever drink. It's, yes. it's not been passed by the management. No. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, uh, we're keen for you to taste it because the water we use here is different from most of the water that we find in other parts of Scotland. Uh, the water that we use here is hard, meaning that the water has seeped through uh, minerals, especially sandstone and, and limestone. So it's hard water, slightly alkaline. So you might be able to taste at the back of your mouth, how it's maybe, I guess the best way to describe it is it's just a little bit drier than soft water. So what I'd like you to do is to actually taste some stones. Okay, perfect. You can eat them <laughs> <laughs> so please help yourself to one of those. Just put my arm. Yeah, you need to suck on them because they are quite hard. But when you suck on the stones...
1: Oh, I love it, i
3: <laughs> You'll see that they turn into Something quite fruity. The reason why we're doing this is uh, the hard water helps us create a fruity whiskey. The minerals in the water interact with the yeast during fermentation so they, the, the yeast will produce a particularly fruity type of beer which we then distill. So that's why we, we like to talk about the minerals in the water because it's highly unusual for a distiller in Scotland to use hard water. We're not completely unique, there are, there are others but it is highly unusual and it has an impact on the taste. It's one of the things that makes uh, Glenmorangie particularly uh, fruity. Mm. Um, So that's one key ingredient. Mm. You cannot make whiskey without water and most distilleries are located close to a water source that can supply enough water
1: What's sort of on the cards for Ardbeg? Is there yeah. any sort of new things there?
2: Yeah, now Ardbeg is a very particular and very idiosyncratic whiskey. And because the base spirit is so strongly flavoured, to actually create new products there, you really have to, you know, do something quite wacky and experimental. I've carried out a number of trials at Ardbeg, which you wouldn't believe some of the things we've done there at Glenmorangie. I have the Lighthouse Experimental Distillery, but at Ardbeg, we're always trying new and different things. A lot of the Ardbeg Day releases we've had over the years have been very successful, but there's much, much more to come from that. And, and like I say, some of the things I've done there, I can't even believe I've tried them, and they haven't all worked. But you know, that's all part of the learning process.
1: Yeah. And did you always want to do that? Did you always want to come into whiskey and really push the boundaries and try different things?
2: Of course, because, you know, I'm a scientist by training, so you always like to try different things and experiment. And as you asked me earlier, that's one of the main reasons I moved to the Glenmorangie company, because I felt I would be left more to my own devices. And and one of the really lovely things when I joined Glenmorangie as distillery manager is... That I wasn't really watched over particularly by the directors of the company at that time so I could pretty much do what I liked and you know the experiments that led to the creation of Glenmorangie's signet for example I didn't tell anyone I was doing that I just did it to see what would happen
1: uh, sounds good this is not the same thing at all but I used to work in a cafe and make lots of different types yeah, of cakes and yeah. no one ever really bothered yeah, me yeah. so every day I'd be like yeah, going to try this yeah. one
2: it's the same sort of thing and you know you you know yourself Rose and you don't always get it 100% right all of the time. But when you do, it's so exciting and so invigorating.
1: Speaking of creativity, Glenmorangie has just released a limited edition 18-year-old. Jillian MacDonald, head of analytics and whisky creation, told us about the collaboration between Glenmorangie and Japanese artist Azuma Makoto. So, 18-years-old whisky
0: of our permanent range, we have it um available uh, all the time, and it's a really amazing whiskey. And one of the things that we were talking about was you know, how do we animate this? How do we get more people to try the 18 years old to um to sort of invite them into this flagship expression within the sort of the, the gateway to the, the premier tiers on uh Glenmoranchy? And I was having a chat with Bill and Julian. tell me about it. So lots and lots and lots of information. Uh, but one thing that they talked about a lot was the floral notes of 18 years old and I was really interested in this particularly because they mentioned particular flowers including sweet pea one of my personal favorites Um, uh, just as an aside and my mother used to be uh, a florist and I I just found this quite compelling so we were we were talking about that and I was saying that you know there's floral notes in other whiskies but no Louise many more floral notes and <laughs> lots and lots of information on it and I so, took that away and it got me thinking about how you know through the language of flowers could we talk about whiskey? and I thought oh, that's maybe just a bit of a random idea we did some research and we discovered an uh, amazing botanical sculpture and um, artist called Azuma Makoto he's based in Japan and, um, and his work is essentially to create sculptures with flowers and he expresses emotion through that. So, gave him a shout. We had a, we had a lovely conversation with him. He turns, it turns out he is uh, was already a Whiskey fan mm-hmm. and, um, and we just had this lovely conversation about could we work together? Tell me more about your work. So, in order to do that, what we do is we get him we got Jillian and Dr. Bill together. We would have gotten them here all together, but unfortunately it was right at the beginning of COVID. So uh, we had a number of Zoom calls in which um, Dr. Bill led a tasting and Azuma-san would, would sort of experience it, but he would talk about his work. And from that, um, what we were able to do was to ask, um, or ask Azuma-san to create for us his experience of tasting Glenmorangie, 18 years old, in his own medium and in, um, in his own mode. So he created a piece of art called Dancing Flowers of Glenmorangie, which was a huge sculpture made with blooms from uh, the tasting notes and beyond. So one of the things that um, the sculpture has about a hundred or more individual blooms within it, so different variants of flowers, and, um, and he said he was really inspired by the fact that 18 years old starts here, starts here in Scotland and Tain. But in fact, it's then transported and enjoyed everywhere all over the world. And he wanted that global aspect to be represented in the work. The thing that I found so amazing when he spoke about his experience of tasting the whisky, he immediately started to talk about the language of flowers, which... I suppose it's just, you know, how his mind works and, and his his own references. So where we talk about, you know, taking a sip, um, having the flavours sort of reveal themselves and then maybe die or fade and have a finish, he talked about his palate dancing, the flowers dancing or the flavors dancing across it. He talked about the fact that He found when he took a sip, the flavour unfurled and blossomed like a bloom and then it faded away. And that sort of ephemeral nature of it's gone. You know, you have a lovely moment, you taste the 18 years old and then it's gone. He found as a parallel to the fact that a flower blooms, it grows, it blooms, it dies. And if you look at some of his work, and I really do um, recommend take a look at his Instagram, it's amazing. He does a lot of time lapse work where he looks at the you know the life of the flower and his artwork and speaks to that journey. So it was really really lovely, but also just on the surface of it, just so visually appealing, so appealing to all the senses, the aroma, the shapes, textures of the flowers. Just really, really beautiful, and actually just quite joyful. Mm. Uh, and that for us is one of the things that Glenmorangie is so important: is to not be intimidating to people, to be really inviting, and to and to welcome people into the world. And to be able to say, "Don't worry about all the the, the detail and the work that goes into it. Just you know, take a sip and and experience it for yourself. And and what you might experience is flowers because that's your sphere of reference but if you know you might experience something else entirely and that's you know that's your experience and it's equally as valid.
1: And just to quickly touch on Ardbeg again, so new things coming out there, I imagine the the fans will be delighted because that's our real fan base. It's
2: a very interesting question because a lot of our Ardbeg consumers are very dedicated and very hardcore. And I sometimes joke with my colleagues in marketing and PR that if I'm pleasing everyone with Ardbeg, then I'm doing something wrong because I know I will upset some people there. But it's just the nature of the beast, if you like.
1: Yeah. I say this while I'm sitting here wearing an Ardbeg T-shirt. Yeah, I, see, I see that,
2: <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> if
1: you could share a quake with anyone, whether they're dead or alive, who would it be and why?
2: <laughs> Obviously,
1: COVID's out the window.
2: Um, I, I, do I, can I only give you one answer or can I name an, a, a number of people there?
1: No, you can name a number of people. Uh,
2: I would like to share a, a quake with my late father because he was partly instrumental in getting me into whiskey, And I remember when I, when I turned 18 or 19, he gave me probably my first proper taste of whiskey, and he said, "Billy, he said you won't like it, but he said trust me, you you will become a fan." And he was right. And it was actually I was twenty four when I when I tasted Glenmorangie when I actually really started to like it. So so I, I would share a quake with him, and um, if Kate was sitting closer to me, she would kick me for giving this answer. But um, my favourite actress is Jennifer Aniston and let's just say I don't just love her for her, her acting capability <laughs> so I would like to share a quake with her
1: <laughs> Sorry to touch on the, the lighthouse so this has obviously been built to your specification it's what you want if you didn't have that if you hadn't done that and you were going to go off and build your own distillery mm. would you model it on any particular Scottish distillery if you weren't
2: working here? I think if I was building my own standalone distillery and it was one of the things I discussed with Mark our former CEO before we decided in the lighthouse. I would model it on the the type of whisky that Glenmorangie is in terms of being very very mellow and very elegant tasting but I would put a couple of different bits and pieces a couple of twists in there and you know obviously I am representing the Glenmorangie company here. So you, you could justifiably say I'm ever so slightly biased. But to me, Glenmorangie is the perfect whisky to take people into the category. So I would probably model it on that, but I would do one or two little points of difference.
1: And if you hadn't, if you hadn't got this, was there anything else that you were thinking of, I've yet to do in terms of experimentation within the confines that you were in?
2: I mean, I've done a lot of these things and, you know, over the next 10 years or so, there is a pipeline of new Glenmorangie and Ardbeg products in the making. And as you will appreciate, Ros, it's a very long, long long-term game, this. So some of the things I'm doing today, I'll probably be retired before they're bottled. So yes, I've tried a lot of these bits and pieces, but the lighthouse now gives me the, the capability to do a lot more than that and you know I've got all sorts of different types of barrels in the warehouse maturing their little hearts out I've used all sorts of unusual raw materials and and the chocolate malt the high rose chocolate malt for Signet which I first used way back in the the 1990s that was just the start and I've tried all sorts of other things at both Glenmorangie and Ardbeg so there's going to be new products coming through from that as well.
1: In an interview with scotchwhiskey.com, you mentioned wanting to work with a specific wine cast from the Middle East.
2: Did that that ever happen? (laughs) Um, Let's just say it's still very high up on my wish list. (laughs) So I'm not giving up. I, I actually have some fairly unusual barrels, wine barrels from the Middle East. But that particular one you're talking about, and we both know what that is, I'm not giving up okay
1: (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned some of your releases will come out once you've retired but you can't be thinking about that anytime soon Well uh,
2: last year I turned 60 Rosalind and I know what you're thinking I don't look a day over 59 right Um, I'm not intending to go anytime soon I, I, I might at some stage take it a little bit more gently Um, But no, I I would like to think I will be around to see at least some of my new products from the Lighthouse Distillery see the light of day.
1: And how, so you've been doing this for your whole career, how do you keep the passion for it going? Is it just because you're so...
2: Into it. it's not even something i think about rosalind it's just there it's within me and you know the day i lose that passion that that's the day i'll retire but I, I can't see that ever happening i have this metaphorical vision of me leaving the company in a box i know that's <laughs> not necessarily a nice thought but that that's the way i look at it yeah
1: It's quite nice in a way, though, because you think, you know, if you're so into your job, there's people who go into retirement who then get bored or, or there's people who work till they're not okay and they regret it. So it's nice that you've got that.
2: I'm somebody who gets bored very easily in life. So it's good to have this type of job where I'm always trying something different, always meeting new people.
1: Um, and just finally the last part of the podcast is uh, Desert Island Rams yep so if you could take any three whiskeys and I don't know whether I should say don't pick Glenmore and Gerard Begg but if you could take any three whiskeys you can include them yeah. what would they be and why yep
2: okay so, so the first one for that would be my first ever eh uh, personal choice of bottling when I was distillery manager at Glenmorangie and we called it the distillery manager's choice and it was from one single first fill American oak ex-bourbon barrel and it was distilled in 1981 and eventually when we bottled it we got far fewer bottles than I expected and I, I thought what's happened here then I realised that I had sampled it so many times because <laughs> to me it was just... The perfect whisky in terms of complexity, in terms of fruitiness, and it had a beautiful, mellow, creamy taste. And I still have two bottles of that in my own personal whisky collection. So that'd be number one. Um, The first ever Ardbeg I tasted, and I wasn't a fan of very heavily peated Isle of Whiskey back in these days but it was with the whiskey writer Jim Murray when we were about to buy the Ardbeg distillery and it was a Gordon and MacPhail bottling a 1978 vintage Ardbeg and I just remember that being completely blown away by that because as well as having all the robust peaty flavours it had a degree of complexity and some flavours that I've seldom tasted before or since so that'd be one of them and then my, my, my non-company whisky would probably be a 12-year-old Highland Park. And, you know, I, I still have one or two bottlings of 12-year-old Highland Park from the 1980s. And to me, it's the perfect all-rounder. It's got a little bit of peat, a little bit of finesse, a nice little bit of sherry-cast character. So that, that would be the third one.
1: Nice. Thank you very much. Uh, sorry, just quickly before we go, would you ever, sorry, I can't remember his name, was it one half and he was over in isla, and he had a selection of his own casks which he bottled and sold. Is that something that you would ever do? Is is it Jim
2: McEwan you're talking about here? Um, I'm not sure about that because in spite of my profile in the industry I like to think that I'm still quite a humble person and what I do, it's it's not really for myself; it's for the company and for the brand. And you know, I, I've got Glen Morangy in my blood, metaphorically and physically after last night. So I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm not certain I, I would be looking to do something with my own name on it. Well,
1: thank you very much. <laughs> right,
2: thank you. Thank
1: you. you thank you. I hope you enjoyed the audio tour of Glen Morangy and finding out a bit more about where they are and their new Lighthouse Distillery. Thanks to Dr. Bill, Gillian, Edward and Ludo, and thanks to you for listening. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe. The Scan is a logical podcast that's co-produced and hosted by me, and Derskin, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton.